Welcome back, everybody, to the second episode of Carnivore Roundtable. This is the Carnivore Diet How-To Guide. We got lots of questions about what exactly a carnivore diet is, and we want to really unpack that for you so that you can understand the wide spectrum of um, places that you might fall within an animal-based diet, um, right from sort of a dirty carnivore diet to a very strict carnivore diet and all of the little pieces that fall in between. We here have a varied group. We've got lots of, we've got strict carnivore, we've got carnivore-ish, we've got more keto, paleo, we've got the whole gamut. So we'll all unpack a little bit about how we each um, eat every day or not eat some days and, um, and let you guys sort of learn a little bit about what it looks like to live a day in the life of. Uh, so first, let's all introduce ourselves. My name is Kate Mitzi. I'm a nutritionist from just outside of Toronto, Canada, and I will pass it along to the next. I'll speak up. Hey, my name is Alicia. Um, you can find me on Instagram. I'm at FatFueled. Um, I've been following a low carb diet for the past three years and I've been carnivore-ish for the past year or so. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, my name is Vajit. Um, I'm a radiologist MD. Um, you can find me on Instagram at LamborghiniCon. And I have a big interest in using like diet and lifestyle for disease prevention. So I've just kind of learned about a lot of that stuff after I finished school and here I am with you guys. Hey guys, this is The Meters. My name is Daniel. And I'm Petra. And we're just a couple of meat eaters. We've been doing this um, way of eating for roughly a little bit over a year now, just trying to always eat nutrient-rich foods. Cool. Well, the first question that we got was, what is a carnivore diet? And um, like, as I mentioned in the intro, that can kind of be a loaded question because there's so many different ways you can do it. Um, but we should get into all of the different angles that one could take and what foods that that would include or disclude. And, uh, and then you can find what fits right for you. Okay, um, I kind of tried to come up with a little bit of an organized way to look at this. I mean, this is not comprehensive by any means, but I'll just kind of go over the different kinds of diets. I guess before I say that, just our little medical disclaimer, like last time, this is not medical advice. So again, you try this stuff at your own risk and consult with um, a clinician before you change your diet drastically. Okay, so um, I guess when we say animal-based, these are usually diets that, you know, generally the bulk of your diet is made up of red meat, poultry, seafood, dairy, eggs, and then maybe other products that are derived from animals. Um, I tried to organize this in sort of like a spectrum going from like generally accepted to be of poor quality on one end and then to like a higher quality diet, but maybe more extreme and how strict it is um, in terms of animal-based diets at the other end. So we'll just get the easy one out of the way first. So um, one, one diet that, I mean, everyone's familiar with is just the standard mixed North American diet, otherwise called SAD or standard American diet. So this is not truly an animal-based diet, but it does often include meat. A lot of people eat meat, but it's often kind of like poor quality meat mixed with a lot of like junk food, processed food, you know, like burgers and deep, you know, fries that have been fried and stuff like that, hot dogs, um, and then all sorts of other process things that you get mainly from like the center aisles in the, in the grocery store, as opposed to like, you know, the produce and, you know, the, uh, the butcher and stuff like that. Um, pretty much any diet you try other than that diet will give you better results, better health than you're in right now. So if you feel better trying something new, that's probably why, because you're just getting rid of all the junk and, and getting more nutritious food. Um, then there's sort of like, I guess, 
dirty carnivore includes um, a lot of processed foods too. So this might be like, um, again, bulk of the diet is animal products, maybe 80 plus percent. The rest can include sort of, some people include junk food along with their sort of more bulk of like carnivore type foods, animal foods. Um, and often the animal products can be sort of like low grade uh, quality meat, burger patties from like McDonald's and stuff like that. Um, that's another way that people describe sort of dirty carnivores or, you know, all meat, but then they're eating kind of low quality meat. Um, then the next sort of broad category is sort of whole foods based diets. And I think most of us here are kind of pretty much doing like a whole foods based diet. And there's lots of different types. So there's one that a lot of people have heard of is sort of like paleo primal or like ancestral eating. So this will be again, whole foods, eating things like meat, fish, eggs, veggies, fruits, nuts, seeds, herbs, spices, and then some healthy fats and oils. And you're avoiding things that are processed, that are refined. So all processed foods, sugary things, high fructose cone syrup, soft drinks, grains, most dairy, uh, artificial sweeteners, um, industrial seed oils, like, you know, canola and stuff like that. Um, and then you would go, and that'll include like in terms of the vegetables for those diets, you'll have things like like starchy vegetables, like tubers, like potatoes, sweet potatoes. Um, then you move over to keto. So ketos is similar to paleo primal, except you're not really eating the starchy stuff. It's a lot more fibrous veggies and you're trying to keep your net carb intake. So that's your total carbs minus your fiber to below 50 grams uh, per day, typically speaking. And a lot of people do keto because um, it gives them more even energy levels. Um, it's like anti-inflammatory so or, or less inflammatory than other diets. So they tend to feel better. Their hunger is more controlled. So it works for a lot of people uh, in terms of, you know, controlling their diet. Um, then there's sort of a keto carnivore or like a carnivore-ish diet. So this will be like keto, except even more animal products. Like probably 80 plus percent of your diet is going to be animal products. I think this is kind of what Alicia does. Um, you wouldn't have starchy vegetables, but you'd have some sort of fibrous veggies that you enjoy consuming or that you can sort of tolerate or, or that you even like eating. Mm -hmm. Every once in a while. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and then the final category is sort of, there's a few really strict carnivore type diets. So the most common one is probably uh, nose to tail carnivore. So again, this time you're not eating any plant products and you're just kind of eating um, like I mentioned, all those different meats. You're also eating uh, organ meats, typically from ruminant animals, but you can have chicken liver and stuff too, seafood, poultry, bone broth, marrow, um, maybe some other sorts of like not very processed condiments made out of animal products, but that's pretty much what nose to tail carnivore is. Um, then the next one up in terms of strictness is uh, PKD or Paleolithic ketogenic diet, which is a new one for me. I just kind of came across that, but it's very controlled, like a you know small quantity of food. You're basically eating about a pound of food a day. Um, your protein is very controlled to like maybe like 70 or 80 grams a day, depending on how big you are. And the rest is like fat and it's all like unprocessed food. Like dairy is actually out of this as well. Like it's just meat, ruminant meats, typically organs and fats. And then the last one um, that's like probably the strictest of all of these, um, it's called the lion diet. And that's what Michaela Peterson has kind of popularized. Like she has really severe autoimmune issues. So she, the only thing she can eat is like steak, salt, and water, apparently. Other things just set her off. So some people find success with that. And I guess with this sort of dietary spectrum, you can kind of look at it as like, you know, it'll work differently for different people depending on their tolerance and like how they react. Like some people don't need to eat that strict and they're 
they're doing fine, they're thriving, but other people do need to. So we're not here to maybe say that any one of these particular diets is the perfect diet, but you know, depending on who you are, like you may have to kind of switch things up depending on what happens to you. Yeah. And depending on what happens to you, if we flesh that out a little bit would be, um, you know, whether or not you are reactive to certain foods. So if you have autoimmune conditions, you might be more sensitive to plant toxins, oxalates, lectins, et cetera. Um, so you would want to avoid those foods. Um, and of course, then in turn, likely replace those calories with more calories from meat, which is how you would head in the direction of a lion diet or a PKD. Um, so yeah, love those, those, that breakdown. I think that's, that's great. Yeah. Thanks Wajid. It's actually really interesting. The PKD was the first time I've ever heard of it was like yesterday when you guys brought it up initially, I had never heard of it before then. So thanks for giving a little bit more of a, an explanation around that. That's really Bro. interesting. I'm going to have to check that out. <laughs> yeah. We just actually rewatched um, the Paul Saladino and Sophia Clemens podcast. And there was so much more to learn even the second time around watching it. I actually feel like we have to watch it a third time because <laughs> <laughs> there's so much to learn. Um, another thing I've been seeing on Instagram a lot is people have been kind of moving from a um, strict carnivore or animal-based diet towards reintroducing things like honey, squash, uh, avocado, um, sweet potato, carrots, mushrooms. And I guess that's more of like a primal, like ancestral type of um, diet, which is pretty cool. Sourdough, uh, they're diving into like the fermenting and, and sprouting and soaking and fermenting grains. So I think that's, it's pretty interesting to, to read up on like their their progress and see how they react I, I i find that it's it's a great tool to be able to learn from others and we all do react differently for sure yeah. yeah and at different times too i think um some of these reintroductions are are happening when people have had like the bulk of their healing happen through a, a carnivore or animal-based diet and they um recalibrate the gut and um, have a lot of reduced sensitivities and then can actually reincorporate foods that um, at one point were really problem problematic for them. Um, and then having gone through the healing mechanism uh, that they're actually able to uh, open up the the array of foods that they can have again. So like the strong sisters or even yeah. Paul Saladino is, is playing around. And um, I think that's great. I think that's really important to, to note that not any one of these diets necessarily has to be forever. Um, mm -hmm. They can be used therapeutically or permanently. It's, it's all up to you. Yeah, that, yeah, that PKD diet, actually, they were saying the main reason they do it, so that's a paleolithic ketogenic diet for the listeners. Um, the main reason they do it is to resolve gut permeability. So initially they mm -hmm. say for some of their patients, eggs are out like completely, even egg yolks potentially, because they say you can get all the nutrition from the other foods. But once they've healed up, they say that some people can go back to eating eggs because now they're, I guess their gut's not permeable and not letting those proteins or whatever um, through the gut lining. Yeah, that's awesome. I would yeah. love if we could share the links to uh, both the podcast you had mentioned, uh, Bajit. And yeah, yeah, we can leave that in the description after. From my understanding, um intestinal permeability that has to do with leaky gut right like having yeah. a leaky gut that's what yeah, it means so, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah so it's the, it's the tight thing. junctions in the gut lining that are typically um quite bound and they start to sort of separate so then you have these pathways where um protein um particles molecules can can sneak through into the bloodstream and wreak havoc yeah so, and it's yeah. 
just from an imaging perspective, it's really interesting. Some of the things we see on CT scans, like we see signs of people with like malabsorption, intestinal malabsorption, and some of it includes like hyperemia, like extra blood flow to the mm -hmm. intestines. Like you see the, the blood vessels all dilate up uh, more than normal. You see some of the lymph nodes start to grow. You can see like um, haziness. So like uh, the, the mesentery, so it's kind of like the root of the bowel has a lot of like fat in and around it. And we start to see sort of haziness, which represents fluid buildup, like edema. Mm -hmm. And what we're taught, even just in conventional medicine, is that that can progress eventually to like lymphoma, all those signs. We call it mesenteric paniculitis, and it can wow. develop in, into cancer, basically. So it's kind of interesting how you go from like this sort of, you know, malabsorption, gut permeability thing to like inflammation, chronic inflammation, and then like cancer and, and chronic inflammation is a huge factor in most cancers. Yeah. And what's sad to me is that um, only about a decade ago, if you talk to uh, any doctor about leaky gut or intestinal permeability, like you're, you would have just seen eyes roll right back into, into their skulls. Um, but it's actually been recognized now. So, um, you know, it, it, it's amazing how far we can come in a short period of time to really um, um, detect something and uh, repeat it over and over until it becomes something that we can actually diagnose and correct. Um, so pretty incredible that these, these diets do have the ability to do that. Yeah, they call it like non-celiac gluten sensitivity or something like that now. Yeah, yeah got it. And uh, I think, I think, I mean, look, I, I, I fully believe that, okay, in medicine, we should be on top of this stuff and learning about this stuff. But in med school, they really spend time teaching you what's common and what's deadly, right? They really focus on that because that's where we can kind of make the most impact. So some of this stuff, you never even really hear about in med school and you'd only do it if you became like a gastroenterologist or did some kind of specialized fellowship in GI. So yeah, for most doctors that are like, what are you talking about? Like gluten, like that's just like voodoo, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I should add, there is a, a really, really great test that can be run um, called a GI map through Diagnostic Solutions Lab in the US. And um, it is not a cheap test. It's probably for Canadians. It works out to be maybe about $540, $550 to run the test. And then, of course, you're going to pay for a clinician to interpret the results for you. Um, in the U.S., of course, with the dollar, it's a little bit less. Um, but this test is fantastic. It's probably one of the gold standard GI tests. Um, and uh, I run it a lot with my clients. Um, it detects a whole array of things, but it looks at um, genetic material. So it actually looks at like the DNA of, of certain things. So you would look, we would see um, sort of like what the microbiome is composed of, you know, normal gut flora, opportunistic gut uh, bacteria, pathogens, um, worms, um, inflammation, we'll look at pancreatic amylase, or sorry, pancreatic enzymes and inflammation. Um, we'll see if you have, uh, we can really detect a lot of things like close to potentially like a celiac um, picture we would see. Um, we can see if there's blood in the stool. We can see if there's um, uh, different um, uh, reactions to certain antibiotics. There's a whole, it's a really incredible test. You get about seven pages of answers and um, it's, it's really fantastic. So if you're wondering if you have leaky gut, intestinal permeability or anything of that nature, uh, I would request from your um, primary care physician, clinician, um, functional doctor uh, to run that test with you because it's really eye-opening and you get some really incredible information. Just a question. So when you would receive those results back, would your doctor read you the results back or would it be a smart 
decision to see someone like, for example, someone like you who's a functional nutritionist who would kind of understand. Um, Optimal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It depends on the doctor. Um, yeah. For sure. There's some doctors that I would never want my <laughs> test results to be in the hands of. Um, but there's also lots of um, MDs that I would absolutely trust to interpret those results. I think you just really have to find the right doctor for you, especially given, um, you know, if you're looking at this alternatively and, and wanting to approach it from a holistic place where you're going to eat to heal, um, you'd really want to make sure that you have an integrative practitioner who is open and um, flexible in their thinking. Um, but definitely any functional doctor should be able to interpret those results or a functional nutritionist. And uh, yeah, I mean, I've taken, the, I've done the test and I didn't have any reason to, I just wanted the information. And I think there are a lot of other um, people in this community, in the carnivore community that have done it. Uh, Paul Saladino does work with this test as well. So um, it's uh, quite well known, quite a reputable lab, um, highly recommend it. That's super cool. Thanks for sharing. It's interesting. Yeah. So, does anyone want to flesh out any of the more specific um, sort of levels of carnivore? Did anyone have anything to add there as far as like any PKD information or strict carnivore nose to tail? Does anyone want to talk about that in more detail or do we feel like we've got kind of a good um, understanding? Um, so I was just, uh, I didn't realize this until today that we practically started on the lion diet. Yeah. Um, just steak, beef, salt, and I think still broth we were doing. Broth and, and sometimes lamb. lamb, yeah. And yeah, so Michaela actually, she does eat lamb from what I know. I don't know if she still eats it um, anymore, but we started uh, off with a lion diet because that's what we knew. And then as we kind of got more into the diet and a few months passed, we continued to educate ourselves and uh, came across Paul Saladino and um, heard about the importance of eating nose to tail, so eating your organ meats, and kind of started incorporating that. And then I think in January, we had the privilege of meeting um, a good friend, Helma, at one of the carnivore meetups, and she told us about Paleo Medicina in Hungary, who does the whole PKD uh, diet. And ever since then, we've just been fascinated and we kind of strive to eat that way. We don't have like a, a um, anything to measure our food with, but that would, we should probably get on that. But the, the more experience you have, I, I do yeah. find that you do to gather a little bit more of a sense of understanding how many, like you um, can eye it out. you're able yeah. to eye it out. And yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest that it's easy to do in the beginning. Of course, it's ideal to have something to weigh, but I mean, after a while you, you tend to learn your meats, you understand how it works. I mean, it's very easy just to start to get an idea by just eyeing it out. So, But the reason I think um, that we kind of went down the spectrum was because we started to analyze how we were feeling and we thought, what could we eat to feel better? And I remember at one point you even wanted to give up the diet because you were so bored of just eating steaks. And yeah. I think you weren't satiated. I think you weren't having um, a, a bit of a plateau after a while. Yeah, yeah a bit of a plateau. Yeah, so and then uh, I think that's when we started to up the fat, more nose to tail, and went a little bit more strict of uh, incorporating nose to tail. And um, yeah, it just just goes back to say I think Vajid uh, really nailed the spectrum perfectly. I mean, even in the community, I've seen so many different people that were inspired by in all of those areas, just eating so well, finding creative ways to like spice up their meals by you know just incorporating a good base of animal based diet, and then the rest is is subject to what someone wants to try out or wants to test out or experiment to themselves, right? Yeah. 
exactly. All right. Well, why don't we each go into a little bit of uh, our own personal diet so that everyone can understand sort of what a day in the life of any one of us would look like and see if something there resonates. Um, Alicia, maybe you want to go first? Sure. Yeah. So I, I feel like my diet has been a little over, all over the place recently. Um, I was very much strict carnivore for a long time. Uh, recently, I've been a little more keto-based, keto carnivore, but I'm, I'm slowly working towards um, being back fully carnivore. Um, when I'm eating like that, uh, a typical day for me would be to wake up, have a either a black coffee or maybe a coffee with a little bit of cream. I still do incorporate uh, dairy into my diet. Um, lunch, I don't always eat. I, I love the whole OMAD one meal a day thing. Um, so it's usually a giant ribeye <laughs> and some butter. Um, I, I guess you could also consider me to be a little dirty carnivore. So might throw in some bacon with that. Um, maybe some eggs if I'm feeling fancy. Um, <laughs> and on the dirty carnivore note, sometimes I will have, you know, a, a burger patty. I make them myself, so they're not, they're not fillers or anything, but I might slap, um, like some processed cheese on there. I don't do it all the time. It's more of a treat for me. Um, but that's basically how it works. Um, in terms of my way of eating, I try not to get too fancy with the sauces or the spices because for me, um, I'm a big advocate for, um, you know, just listening to your body and eating when you're hungry and stopping when you're full. And I think we'll get into that a little bit later. But for me, um, the spices play a big role in that. And um, I just, <laughs> I guess if, if, if it tastes too good, it's a little hard to, to listen to your body's hunger signals. Um, so I, I pretty much just try to stick with salt. Shout out to Redmond's. It's the best salt there is. Um, maybe a little bit of pepper. Um, and then other than that, that's basically it. So definitely heavy emphasis on red meat, uh, minimal seasonings. Um, yeah, I think that, that about captures it for me. <laughs> um, I just wanted to add, add a few questions just about your diet, because I know our, our viewers will probably be wondering about this, but like, how do you determine for yourself, like how often to eat, when you're eating, like how much, I think the quantity sometimes, that question kind of confuses people or like when to eat. Yeah, exactly. And I've done a lot of experimenting on this. I personally don't track because I find the the weighing and the counting and stuff a little triggering in terms of, you know, disordered eating habits, but I've come to get a pretty good idea of how much it is that um, I'm capable of eating. It's, I would say probably between a pound or two of meat a day, depending on my activity levels. And that being said, some days I wake up and I'm not hungry at all. I don't force myself to eat food. And then other days, like if I'm in my luteal phase of my menstrual cycle, I am ravenous. I will eat all of the things. So again, it's just like listening to my body. Um, like I mentioned, I don't often eat breakfast or lunch. I do a lot of OMAD type things, but then um, if I wake up and I'm hungry, I'm going to, I'm going to eat. I don't force myself to fast if I don't want to. Although I think we were talking about this earlier, not on the podcast, but, um, a restricted time eating schedule is not fasting. <laughs> it's just, yeah, uh, apparently. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyways, there's that. Any, any other questions, budget? Uh, no, I think that was pretty good. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll go ahead. 
Um, so for us, uh, kind of similar, we, we try to stick to like the OMAD as much as possible, but as always, that doesn't always fall into plan. Um, there could be times where we just get a little bit hungry, but I feel like the days that we do OMAD, we try to push it a little bit to like the later part of the evening. Um, 4 p.m. Oh, I would say probably, like, yeah, any, the window between like four to six, seven. Um, that would be basically on a day that we're just eating once. And for those that don't know OMAD, just one meal a day. Um, and then obviously there are some days where, I don't know, we're, we're, we wake up early, it's 12, one noon and we're hungry. We want to eat. We got to listen to the body. It's a lot of intuitive eating. So, you know, we'll have like a smaller meal. Maybe we'll bake, we'll break our first meal with like a nice broth with an egg yolk, um, something of that nature or something like, you know, some salmon with perfectly like good snack with some eggs or something like that. Um, and then typically with OMAD, we'd like to really stack it up. So that could be anything from just like a nice big prime rib. Um, with some liver so it, we always try to incorporate some kind of nose to tail with our steak so whether that's like kidney liver um, brain or whatever it may be and then um, we try to there's a couple key things that we always want to at least have like I would say two to three times a week which is probably the fish we, we try to get our salmon in that's something that's always like at the end of the week did we have our salmon in um, and our, our, cod our cod liver is another one and then our nose to tail, we're, we're a little bit more um, conscious of that. Um, we're always trying to think of what can we spice up the baseline of what, whether it's just like a beef brisket or red meat. What could we add to the meal that could try to get in our, our nose to tail in? So there's a big emphasis on like the baseline, which I would probably say, which is mostly like steaks, um, different cut, cuts of beef that we like. Um, and then there's the, the weekly intake that we're always trying to get our fish in, our salmon in and then our nose to tail, whatever it may be. And then there's always fat accompanied with all the meals or the majority of the meals. So that's just like either suet, uh, beef fat. Um, what else would you say that? So the um, well, it depends, right? Like if we have a brisket, we get our briskets from Green Pastures Farm. Mm -hmm. uh, this is not sponsored, <laughs> but uh, they as much as we love Mike, it's not sponsored. So they're really good, and they're they're so fatty that at that point you don't need to add any additional fat. Yeah. Or we have prime rib steaks, super fatty. Sometimes we won't add fat to those. We we typically add fat to strip loins because they've just got that one little strip of fat on, that on, one side, yeah. on the side. And then the way that we get our fat is we buy grass fed beef fat or suet, and then we chop it up like uh kind of like ice cube size and we freeze it and then when we're ready to eat it we just kind of um cook it on a frying pan yes. <laughs> or in the air fryer and it just looks like crispy little popcorn and you can uh at first i couldn't really stomach it so much just because it's so much grease so much fat so i would chop it up really really small and then it would just be like these crispy little bites but now i find I actually like them a little bit bigger and I like it not so crispy. So And you lose like yeah. a lot more when you really cook it down, you, right? You so. lose a lot of it. That's uh, that's so interesting. I was just gonna say I have a whole bag of suet pre-chopped in my freezer and I've been meaning to, you know, add it to my meals. I saw uh, the strong sisters were just doing it essentially raw with some salt. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. okay, maybe we'll do that. I had a friend of mine that was like, ugh suet that's gross don't do that type thing but i never thought to air fry it so maybe i'll i'll try that out really so <laughs> just one thing to watch out for um i would chop it up fairly big just because suet kind of just melts 
as opposed to the beef fat. So one time I tried to fry suet and it just like rendered down to liquid. And I was like, no. <laughs> it looked like a gluey paste. Yeah, I just wasted oh, yeah. it all. But um And then I feel like often we have like I guess we would consider not a bit of a cheap but less optimal, which is like our pork and our chicken. So for example, like mm -hmm. if we had an OMAD and for whatever reason we were still a little bit hungry after, like there's there's no harm in just putting maybe like a nice like half a pound each of chicken wings into the air fryer or like some pork belly that we've all talked about pork belly is a great source of fat and all, but I mean the quality of the pork that in we have Canada, access to yeah. in Canada. I mean, uh, Sophia talks a lot about, oh, it's not the same in Europe and you know, it's it, for some people could cause some reactions. Some people it's, it's just fine. But for us, we don't feel our best when we have the pork belly, even though as much as we love it. Um, but that would be sort of like a lighter, I don't want to say it's like a cheat or anything like that because it's still it's still awesome. We don't feel as bad, yeah. but it's not optimal. It's not the greatest, and we still love the taste of it. So you could always have your little fillers in of little things that um, you know if you're not, if you're still feeling like you're a little bit hungry, but you don't want to have it a nice massive ribeye that you already had before. <laughs> there's always these little snacks that you know we like to sort of snack on as pork belly, yeah. chicken wings, and. Anything yeah. of that of that nature. I'm mentioning that too because I forgot to say that. Like I will supplement with some chicken wings every once in a while. I do love pork belly as well. Uh, don't have that all the time again because just like the quality of me. But um, yeah, it's good. It's and it's good. like it's variety as long as it's not like the the main. <laughs> it's not like it's black and white, right? Like you guys are saying, it's it's like a cheat. But I mean, diet choices are like on a spectrum, right? So it's still way better than like eating a bag of potato chips or something as yeah. your cheat, right? So. Exactly. exactly. I, I did have a question for you guys, though, because you had mentioned the whole nose to tail concept, which I love. Um, but I'm having a hard time struggling with um, getting some of those products. And like, I've tried liver and stuff like that. And I just do not have a taste for it. So it's really hard to motivate myself to consume it. Um, I don't know if it was with you guys that we were talking about this. Um, but I heard somewhere that you can essentially go to your butcher and say, can you just make me like a, a mince of, of nose to tail, whatever you have type thing? Was that one of you that mentioned that? And what, yeah. what exactly do you have to ask for? Because I'm curious. <laughs> you can get um, a nose to tail ground at Green Pastures. Yeah. It might be time that they actually do give us some free meat for all of these. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we are taking sponsors. Like, we don't have any, but if anybody wants to offer, like, we're listening, right? Yeah, that's where we get ours from. Tail ground. It's, it's, it's often referred to as dog food. Um, like, a lot of the time people go to their butcher and ask for dog food, and that's just sort of like all the scraps ground um, in, and then they feed it to their dogs. But um, we crazy carnivore people eat that stuff for dinner. Um, <laughs> it's like, yeah, we're on a budget, we're like, mm, Morgan meat, yeah. dog food you can. <laughs> but you can also just make it yourself. Like a lot of people have meat grinders at home, like they're really cheap and you can just, you can take like kind of more tougher cuts. So, um, you know, like you wouldn't do this with a ribeye because I think that would be sacrilegious, but like, you know, any of your like tougher, more like um, sort of like, tendony kind of steaks and stuff you can throw those in there and then throw your liver or your hearts or whatever it is in with it and then make like burger patties out of those or meatballs or whatever so that they kind of it kind of hides the flavor a little bit you can ask for that at whole foods too or any of your other any like you know healthy butcher in toronto or wherever you get your meats um obviously you would just want to consider the quality of this the shop that you're getting yeah. them from but yeah well, that's thank a good you. way to do it 
<laughs> and I think you guys are all like more culinary wizards than I am. I'm like, I'm very simple. So for me, like I try to, like I look at some of these foods almost as like a supplement. So rather than like popping a bunch of capsules, my beef liver, like to maintain as many nutrients as possible, I actually have it raw. Like, I mean, I don't, I don't cook it or anything, but what I do is I just wash it really well. I cut it into like little swallow, like, you know, bite-sized pieces basically. I just swallow enough whole. I try to get about two ounces a day. And it's like taking a supplement um, with my first meal. So it's not not fun by any means, but I think at least this way I know I'm getting like optimal or, a, you know, better nutrition than say trying to take stuff from supplements where it's not even absorbed properly. And actually Sophia Clemens was saying a lot of supplements can even irritate your bowel lining and, and worsen your intestinal permeability, which I never even thought of. I thought it was perfectly safe. Um, another simple thing that I tried recently was just like making my own bone broth from marrow bones. So I got these like, you know, cross sections of big, you know, beef bones, and it had all this connective tissue on the outside that I just couldn't pull off. But I boiled it with some a uh, couple tablespoons of vinegar, big pot of water for about eight hours. And then all that connective tissue fell off. And it was delicious. Like I just ate it afterwards with a bit of salt. It was so good. And I know I'm getting all these nutrients that I wouldn't have otherwise gotten. And it was really simple. You just boil it. I, I can do that. So if I can do it, anybody can do it. <laughs> for sure. I was going to say, um, I would really like to look more into this, you know, the whole notion of that when you eat raw meat, you absorb more of the, the nutrients. Yeah. Um, Sophia Clemens in one podcast, I can't remember which one said that that's not necessarily true, but oh, I lost the meters. Okay. Hopefully they'll be back. Anyways, we can keep going while they're kind of frozen there, I guess. Oh, dear. Well, <laughs> why don't you uh, enlighten us with what your day looks like? Sure. I mean, so, okay, my diet, I mean, I'm still experimenting. All this carnivore stuff is new for me from January. So my diet's changed even from January till now a couple of times because I'm still oh, experimenting with back? stuff. Oh, are you guys back? are back? Yeah, okay. sorry about that. Not sure what happened there. No worries. Um, okay, why don't you guys keep going then? Where did I leave off? <laughs> right at the beginning. <laughs> right at the beginning. Okay. Yeah, you were talking about Sophia and how she talked, uh, mentioned that sometimes eating raw meat is not um, actually better or necessarily more optimal than eating cooked meat. Yeah. So I thought that was really interesting because I do see a lot of people on Instagram that actually follow the PKD protocol. They eat their meat raw. So I'd love to dive into that a little bit more and see, like, what's the truth, <laughs> you know? It's yeah. And I don't know, like uh, the absorption thing, I, I don't know, but I thought that heat destroyed a lot of the, the, you know, nutrients, that, but I don't really know for sure. Like I haven't really dug into them. I don't know, Kate, do you know anything yep. about that? Yeah, so it would depend on a couple of things. So first of all, you obviously the integrity of your gut and how well you digest food um, plays a, a, an initial role into it. So, you know, if you're new in your journey and you maybe have like suboptimal or inadequate levels of stomach acid and you actually can't physically break down um, food very easily, then starting out with cooked uh, meat might be better because you can, you know, digest it a little bit faster as it's sort of a bit in a more of a pre-digested state. Um, and then 
as far as what nutrients are destroyed with heat, vitamins definitely are more damageable with, with heat. Um, minerals are not damaged through that process at all. So, um, you know, like your copper and magnesium, um, those sorts of things are not, are going to be stabilized, whether it's raw or, or cooked. Um, but certainly like if you were eating organ meats and you were really depending on the very small amounts of say vitamin C that you would get in a, in a piece of organ meat, um, or, um, you know, vitamin E, et cetera, then those you would want to at least have either raw or more uncooked, um, like very rare, because yes, those vitamins would be compromised in the heating process, just the same way that they are in vegetables. Right. So sorry, and what did you say, if you cook it, what, what happens to the vitamins and minerals, like the other ones? I missed The minerals that. are stable. Right, the minerals, but the vitamins, what, does so, anything happen to them? Yes, so the vitamins, um, the, 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 structure and integrity of the vitamins decreases. So you okay. might have, you know, I, I can't tell you the exact figures because it would depend on all sorts of things, how you're cooking it for how okay. long, et cetera. But um, yeah, if you're cooking it at high heat, then you, then those vitamins are damaged maybe to the point that they don't exist at all anymore. Um, but that's why, yeah, having something a bit more raw or um, uh, at least, you know, somewhat um, on the rare side would be more beneficial. So does, Cooking meat at any point increase bioavailability or absorption of any nutrients in it? I believe so. I believe there, I, I don't know this uh, well, so um, it would have to, I'd have to find the link to uh, a podcast that I heard and I don't believe it was on Paul Saladino's. I actually think it may have been The Healthy Rebellion with, Paul, with Rob Wolf. I'm going to have to get back to you on that one now. Sure. Okay, cool. But there are some, there are some specific nutrients that, that are more easily and more, more bioavailable when cooked, but I cannot recall them off the top of my head. Okay. Yeah. All right. I guess I will, when you guys froze, we kind of started with my diet. So I guess I'll just, are you guys done with your, your stuff? We're done. Yeah. <laughs> All right, cool. So I will continue. So basically, yeah, I'm just at an experimental phase. I've done strict carnivore here you know, over the last few months for like two or three weeks at a time to see how I feel. I'm kind of coming out of this phase now where I've like reintroduced a few different foods and I pretty immediately feel bad when I eat like any kind of like cow milk dairy based thing. Um, rice, I'm not really sure. I don't feel perfect with it, but I don't feel horrible either. And I know from years ago that gluten, grains, all that stuff never makes me feel good if I eat it in any significant amount. So I know those foods are out. Um, I've tried like blueberries, um, goat, goat milk, mozzarella cheese, goat cheese in general. Those have been fine for me. Um, but I think right now what I'm doing because I have, my main goal right now is to optimize my sleep. And right now my sleep is like a seven out of 10 maybe compared to like a three or four out of 10 before I started carnivore when it was more plant-based, but I want to get it to where it's like a nine or 10 out of 10 consistently. So I'm still experimenting and I'm thinking of transitioning to the PKD, which is an even more strict form of carnivore, lower calories. So right now uh, I'm eating two meals a day. Used to be three meals a day because I was coming from a sort of a bodybuilder's mindset where you have to eat, you know, regular protein feedings to keep building muscle. But my hunger is just like going like down, which is great because the rest of my life I've just had out of control hunger. So right now it's two meals a day. I'm not even always hungry kind of mid-afternoon when I eat my first meal. But generally my, my first meal is uh, like cooked beef chunks, maybe some like a filet of salmon, um, egg yolks on the side. Uh, I might have a cup of bone broth. And then like I mentioned earlier, I'll do the raw liver as sort of my, my supplements for the day. 
Um, and then my next meal is usually probably like eight or nine in the evening. And I'm trying to move that earlier and reduce the amount of food to hopefully have a good influence on my sleep. But it'll basically be just now it'll be like one steak, like a New York strip or a ribeye or something. I might add some lamb chops on the side and a couple egg yolks. Um, I think I'm probably moving towards more of an OMAD thing. So for people who aren't familiar, like OMAD stands for one meal a day and it's a form of time restricted, you know, feeding. So basically you're fasting for like, you know, 22, 23 hours a day and you've got like a short window where you're eating one meal and other people do other forms of intermittent fasting where it might be two meals a day and you've fasted for 16 hours out of, out of 24. But that's kind of where I'm headed next. And I guess I'm also trying to do what you guys are doing is like eat towards to like hunger. Like I want to kind of make things more natural. I want to get out of the whole weighing and tracking, although that, that was helpful for many years. I want to get away from that and find an intuitive way of eating that optimizes my nutrition, makes me sleep well. I'm not as neurotic about my diet anymore. Cause like I, I do recognize like that, what they call ortho, orthorexia i think orthorexia is the, the term for it where it's like you're really really like focused on like the little details of what you're eating um so yeah that's kind of where i'm headed um i don't think i really want to add plant fat plant, sorry plant foods back in but i just want to know if i'm gonna have it some time for a special occasion what is more okay to eat than others um so yeah that's that's pretty much it and i do kind of weigh and track my food just until I get an idea of portion sizes like you guys were saying so that I don't um, go completely off track when I'm eyeballing things um, when I'm out and about, for instance. Yeah, that's great. Um, I, mine is very fluid. Um, I've been, um, I would say, animal-based for about close to four years now, coming off of a strict vegan diet for a decade. Um, and through those four years, I've really played around with sort of where I feel best and, and what foods that I react to. So I'm pretty confident in the list of foods I know I cannot have. Um, and that does include some of the still keto friendly foods like nuts, for example. Um, so even a small amount of like almond flour or something like that would really trip me up. Um, so uh, for me, like actually most of you guys, I'm really um, mostly OMAD. Um, that doesn't always end up that way though. Like um, Dan and Petra, if I wake up on a random day and feel really, really hungry, then I will listen to my body and I will eat. Um, but I've never, I haven't had three meals a day in uh, longer than I can remember. And I am at exactly the same thing. I really wait till the point of hunger to eat. So really, truly, that means I'm like shaky, lightheaded, and ready to uh, eat someone's arm off. <laughs> um, that is kind of like, those are the cues that we were built in to tell us that we're actually hungry. And so I really don't understand why anyone would ever eat until that point. Maybe it doesn't need to get to that level that intensity um but when you're close to it and that's that's when i suggest eating and when i eat and then i stop eating when i'm full and for me that can sometimes be a, a really small portion and it can sometimes be an insane amount of food that sometimes people find um interesting for a girl my size to be able to pack away <laughs> um but uh yeah when you're really when you're really only eating animal products or you know a small amount of plant food um you're quite in tune with what your body needs i find um it's 
unusual that I would have cravings for any of those foods outside of just like baseline hunger. Um, certainly to Alicia's point, like the more I season my food, the more my hunger cues are confused by flavor. Um, even though just like a plain ribeye with salt can be like incredibly delicious when you start to create these like complex flavor profiles, that's when I find it um, challenging to sort of understand like, am I actually still hungry or is that just like my my brain and my mouth telling me that I want more flavor. Um, so, uh, you know, because I have a child, there are foods in our house too that I don't eat. Um, I even might um, post recipes and things like that on my social media channels of, of meals that he has had, um, but that I don't eat. So I actually feel pretty good that I can be around a lot of foods that don't interest me, that I know don't serve me. Um, and not feel like I am out of control and have to have them. Uh, I think that's really important and, and a milestone that you eventually hit when you've really focused on this diet for long enough that you rewire your brain away from all of the, the trip ups and the, and the cravings and the um, you know, um, foods that we are sort of pressured to eat as a society. I don't track my macros anymore, but I did for so long that I can practically tell you how many calories, grams of protein, fat, and carbs are in just about any food you put in front of me. <laughs> um, I'm not interested in tracking those unless I'm trying to achieve something really therapeutic. So if I was doing like a, um, like a limited protein fast, or if I was doing PKD, for example, or something along those lines, then yeah, I would track. Um, but really it's about hunger cues and really listening to the body. And a normal meal for me would probably be a ribeye. That's my go-to. Um, and then, uh, you know, yeah, my special like sort of treats would be pork belly or um, chicken thighs. I actually really love chicken thighs, but I don't eat them regularly because I don't think they're very nutritious. Um, and marrow, bone marrow is probably, I probably eat bone marrow three to four times a week. Um, bone broth as well, or even just like really cooked down bone broth as a jelly, and I eat it cold, like a couple spoonfuls, like a, like almost like Jello. Um, I make carnivore gummy bears, uh, <laughs> same kind of concept, but pouring it into molds, and you can even get your kids to eat them that way. And and then the plant foods that I do incorporate are minimal, so small portions of plant foods. So like it mostly would just be kind of like a decoration on the plate that I happen to eat. It's not that I'm relying on it at all for um, any source of nutrition at that point. It's kind of just like for fun, really. Um, but they're foods that don't bother me. So I like to do that because I don't raise my son to be fully carnivore. He, I want him to be robust and I don't think that raising a child on a strict corn carnivore diet, unless therapeutically necessary, is necessarily the right thing to do. Uh, I want him to be exposed to plant foods and, and ensure that he is resilient and whole enough to be able to withstand those because when he goes off in life, he's going to eat whatever he wants. Um, so he is primarily uh, um, on the same page as me, but has higher uh, higher carbs, so he might eat tubers still, um, and um, more berries, things like that, and honey. Um, but uh, we're a grain-free household with the exception of maybe 10 times a year, we might incorporate some white rice. Um, but that, even that is, is quite rare in our house. So we are more flexible um, within the parameters of what I know works best for us. 
Um, but definitely 80% of our calories were more from, from animal foods. You touched on something really interesting just about like hunger and hunger cues and stuff. Like I find that on this way of eating, like your hunger becomes more physiologic, right? So like you can eat until you're not hungry anymore at one end of the spectrum and you're good to go. Right. And then you can eat till you're full because until you're physically like a little distended, but you're like, yeah, I really don't want to eat anymore. But what I find never happens on this diet versus the way I used to eat before with more processed foods is like, I never eat till I hate myself. Like you guys know that feeling when you're like in pain, you're like, you're having like massive food regret. Like I really shouldn't have had that second serving of dessert, but it just doesn't happen when you eat this way. Oh, imagine. I know all about that. (laughs) Yeah. I'm struggling here, guys. I've got this like beam of light across my face. I'm not really sure what to do about it. There we go. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt the program, but no that's like literally being cooked alive. <laughs> yeah, well, there's that vitamin D. You're getting vitamin D all inside. <laughs> a couple of uh, months ago, when Daniel was still in his cheating phase, we went to this uh, place called Kushi. It's actually really good. It's at Avenue Road and Eglinton. It's a sushi place. And I had some sashimi. And he's like, you know what? I'm just going to go crazy. I'm going to order everything that I used to have. That's how it starts. That's how it starts. Oh no. Oh no, no. <laughs> Sorry about that. Oh, oh wait, there and, we go. Um, okay. What'd you order? He got sushi. Those, uh, with fried, uh, what are those? Takoyaki? Takoyaki. Deep fried octopus or something like that? Octopus. Anyways, long story short, the second we walked out of there, he looked pregnant and he was like in, in excruciating pain. <laughs> and the whole drive, he was like, I have like, it wasn't your heart hurting or something? I, I just, like, like I just said, I hated myself. I hated how I felt. I hated everything about the decisions I just had made. We were in pain, like in physical pain. Yeah. And yeah. I was honestly so good. And I was just laughing at him. I'm like, this is your choice. <laughs> Like you, you chose this. Yeah, yeah. you could just really be <laughs> refreshing to not feel like you're in like a food coma, even after you eat so much. And something really interesting that you guys, uh, that Alicia and Kate said, is um, regarding the food spices. So we actually feel that way with dairy. When when we eat dairy, as delicious as it is, it totally throws off our, our hunger cues and it really ignites some pretty severe cravings of, I agree. of everything yeah. else. It's interesting you say that. And I remember after our last podcast mm-hmm. session where you went into some more details about that, I was like, huh, I should really like give this no dairy thing a try. And I'm going to be honest, I completely forgot about it until just now. <laughs> Once I get through the cheese that I have in my house, maybe I'm going to try and just see because to your point, I mean, I think it might be messing with my, my hunger signals a little bit or just, I don't know. I'd just be curious to see. I like to do a little experimentation. Yeah. I'm getting rid of my dairy too. I was that, that exact podcast that you want to watch the Sophia Clemens one. She talks about dairy and how, whether or not it's like a one or a two cow or goat milk, it's, it's bad. And she, I mean, I don't know what evidence she's quoting but she's saying it's implicated in things like multiple sclerosis uh and there was some other autoimmune disease i forget which one it was but she was saying dairies i think even can't is it cancer i forget what she was saying um don't quote me on that but she was talking about a couple pretty prominent diseases and and apparently dairy can trigger that in people that's interesting yeah i'll have to look into that yeah I think it's important to note too, for anyone who's watching this content and um, sort of like just about to sort of embark on this journey that you to, to start, like if you, if, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. And so it might be a really good place for you to start 
and continue consuming dairy, like that could be um, sort of like a stepping stone to a more optimal way of eating. Like, like with all of us, I mean, here we are, um, you know, anywhere from four years to sort of one year into our respective journeys. And um, we, you know, the, the, the things we eat and don't eat change as we sort of learn more and more about ourselves. And so I think for someone who's just like stumbling upon this, um, you know, if eating dairy at the beginning helps for you to stay on the straight and narrow, um, that you should allow yourself to do that. And then once you're stabilized and you reset your palate and your metabolism is more fat adapted and, and all of those sorts of things that you can then take away uh, the foods like dairy, et cetera, and, and sort of feel the difference and, and whether or not that's an issue for you. But I think most people find dairy to be problematic. Yeah. And I think on that note, a lot of people may be coming to this podcast, like the how-to guide for the carnivore diet, wanting like a prescription, wanting us to tell them like exactly how to eat and how much and what foods, but there is real no right answer other than like what you're able to stick to and whatever you can improve, like whatever you feel comfortable with. Like if you don't feel comfortable, like eating the way I do kind of more on the strict carnivore spectrum, that doesn't mean you don't get any benefits if you don't do that. There's like other ways to do it. Like you guys are reaping lots of benefits from not being as strict. So people kind of have to figure out for themselves what works for them at what point in their life and then kind of move forward and figure it out as you were saying. Yeah. All right. Um, let's move on to question two. Uh, the next question is something that I think all of us have gotten quite a lot. And, and I know I get asked this all the time and it's, isn't it expensive to eat this way? And I'm just gonna head it off at the pass here that I really find that to be such a strange, um, like it's such a, it's such a, I don't know where that came from because I actually find it to be like very, very affordable. I don't know about you guys and it definitely depends on where you source your meat and how much you eat. But if you're eating OMAD and you're eating one meal a day and you're obviously then not going out for meals in restaurants and you're not drinking coffee or buying juices or, you know, all of the other crazy things that <clears throat> people buy, uh, uh, you know, day to day, you're actually saving a ton of money and you're also not spending money on produce if you're a strict carnivore or nose to tail carnivore. Um, so uh, depending on, on the quality of meat, you can actually really be saving quite a lot. For sure. And, and depending on where you are too, um, I, I would argue to say, you know, I think it's expensive to not eat this way. You can't put a price on health, right? I mean, that's yeah. really the only thing we have. Uh, you only have one body, you better treat it right. So um, very good point. Yeah, like, I don't, I don't want to judge people. Like, I know some people like nice things. But I personally think if there's one thing you want to splurge on, it's like food quality, because you know, you are what you eat is very true, right? Like that impacts your health, length of life, quality of life. So you should definitely prioritize spending on diet. But I, I do echo like for a lot of reasons, like, you know, like my, my hunger is a fraction of what it used to be. So I'm eating less, I don't need to even eat that much meat, you're getting more nutrition for the food that you do eat. Like you said, you're not buying anything else. Um, and a lot of the, the stuff that we eat that's processed or even produce is brought in from like tropical countries. Like there's a cost to that, the production, the transport. Whereas this way of eating, you could eat very local and get all your meat and product, animal products from local farms. Um, and there's other ways to save uh, money too. Like, I mean, a lot of people, what they do is they'll buy like an entire cow from the butcher and have it all cut up, put it in their deep freezer, or they'll go in with, 
other people they know that eat a lot of meat and kind of split the cost. So um, you can save money that way. And then just by not buying all the other food that you used to eat. I, I haven't done the math, but I'm pretty sure it's, it's a wash or I'm saving money. Yeah. yeah, it's so refreshing to hear you guys say all that because like the two main points that we really wanted to bring attention to on this question was uh, first, like the communities, right? Like I'm sure the community groups that you guys are all in, how many times have we seen people saying, hey, does anyone want to go halves on a cow with me? Um, I'm looking to get this, this and that. So like there's obviously ways that you could save while spending with your community. And then we actually uh, keep track of like all our expenses like to the dollar. Oh, and cool. we came to the conclusion that we eat roughly about between the both of us, like $28 a day. So it's about $14 each. Um, I don't know. To some people, that's a lot. Some people, it's like not a lot. It all depends. I would love to see, actually, we were talking about it. I would love to see what we were eating this time of the year, like last year, when we're, or at least when we we're on the standard American diet. Yeah. Um, calculate that cost and then compare it now to this. And I guarantee it's definitely lower. Yeah. Um, because you know, you, you minus all the times that you go out, you eat out snacks. and the snacks, yeah. never feeling truly satiated. You always want to eat another meal and you get another <laughs> meal. And, um, yeah, I just think, you know, to be spending at least $28 a day on the most nutrient dense bioavailable grass fed animal based foods. Like it's, it feels like it's a steal almost. Yeah. Yeah. And sorry, go ahead. Um, I was going to say, Alicia, I completely agree with you too. Like if, if you don't invest now, you're going to have to pay the price for it later. And that price is your health. And I think that um, I hear that a lot, that it's not an affordable way of eating. And it comes from people who either don't really see the point of an animal-based diet and the health benefits or don't really value their health that much. So they don't really see like a connection between the food that you eat and how you feel. So it's very hard to have a conversation with someone that doesn't value the same thing that you do and convince them that this is an affordable diet and you probably should be eating more animal-based for your health. So. Yeah, and on a tr true like dollars and cents perspective, like you know what you were saying, you, you, people should value their health because like what's more costly, eating this way or having a stroke and being on disability and literally not being able to like earn an income for like months or years yeah. of your life, right? Just imagine that you could lose... I don't know how many thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars just from one, you know, health complication like that. Or um, even some of our American viewers too, you know, any hospital oh visits yeah. that are yeah. a result of some sort of disease or illness that comes from a poor eating habits or suboptimal eating habits, um, yeah. things to consider as well. And opportunity costs, like you'll miss out on maybe vacations with family, being able to spend time with loved ones in a quality way, going on walks or hikes with them if you literally just can't do that because your health is too poor. So there's yeah. those costs, intangible yeah. costs to consider too. And I was even thinking like the amount of costs that I was spending on my, like the asthma puffers, my allergy pills. I mean, yeah, uh, those, those Aries pills, Claritin, like that was, I was, I was stocked <laughs> yeah. up on those heavy back in the day, right? To think that those are all gone now. And now it's just investing in our, what we eat. Yeah. Very refreshing now, right? I have a cupboard full of supplements that I hope I never have to use or buy again after all this. Um, and also just eating out. I find even if you do go out to eat, you're just not ordering like everything you used to. Like I might order a steak or like a meat heavy, you know, entree probably won't order a side. And even if I do, it'll be something more like a, like a baked potato or something like that. Um, it's just, I find I'm eating out less and ordering less when I go out to eat. So I was just actually doing the math. Like you guys were saying $28 a day for the both of you. So 
I multiplied that by 365, that's about 10 grand. So if you divide that by two, that's about 5,000 a piece for you guys. And I know I used to like roughly do the math on what I used to eat. And I, for one person, would spend about $5,000 on food per year. So it's lining up as, as much or less, I think, uh, eating this way. It's not, definitely not more expensive yeah. if you do it right. And, and you guys are eating well too, right? Like green yeah. bars, like sometimes that's quality it's cheaper. Sometimes it's cheaper than $14 yeah. a day. Like we, I, we always try to like uh, sort of underestimate, like to be honest, a lot of the times like we're able to feed more people with that. Um, the reason why that is, is like we always optimize like our leftovers. We're always the type to like, if we were to come over before the whole quarantine, like we bring our family friends steaks, um, like a lot of that cost we've just considered as too consuming, but really it, it has gone to like feeding other people, families. When we come over, we like to bring some, you know, maybe a roast for like uh, the household. So yeah, it's, it's, it fluctuates, but it's, it really comes down to, I mean, if you buy bulk, that's another thing, right? We, we buy bulk and we're always stocking up, but when we consume, like we record everything. So maybe that's been sort of the way to save a lot as opposed to if you were to, to buy individually like the meal let's say every day what, whatever you're going to eat for the day you would buy like the day before maybe you wouldn't be able to achieve those numbers but definitely buying bulk and um you know fortuning and just like just being organized you can definitely probably even do it for less i would say because we eat pretty well we, we eat a lot of different we eat like a wide variety of food we kind of got bored after a while of just doing the beef and salt so now i mean just follow the page of the meters you guys will see everything that we eat there show you'll find like a bunch of wide variety of different things at once we like to spice it up so it never gets boring though yeah <laughs> ever it's a lot more sustainable this way yeah. i think so too because we're never yeah. bored we look forward to every meal and like i said like i wake up excited to eat i can't wait till we get to that point that we break our fast and uh it's just truly life-changing yeah i can't get sick of steak like i mean whatever kind of steak it is it's always delicious it's surprising <laughs> six months in five months in you know well, okay. here's a, an interesting thing that happened to me at the onset of this uh, whole pandemic quarantine situation. Um, so I started taking zinc every day because I was just like, well, I don't know if this is going to end up being as insane as everyone thinks it is or what. So I'm just going to like make sure that I'm backloaded and, and really protecting my immune system. So I was taking zinc citrate every morning. Um, well, morning with my first meal. So whatever that time of day was. And, um, uh, after about three weeks of taking it, I had zero desire to eat meat, period. Like I could not put a bite of meat in my mouth. I couldn't. I felt like I was pregnant and had like major food aversions. And um, this is just an interesting sort of anecdote about the whole supplement thing. But when you take too much zinc, you lose your taste. You lose your taste. Your sense of taste goes completely. It's a side effect of taking too much zinc. So there you go. There's one thing of where I decided to roll in a supplement that I'm not used to taking. And then I lost my ability to eat properly. And in that in turn would probably affect my immune system a great deal more than I would have if I just left the zinc out in the first place. But, um, yeah, I, I couldn't, I could not, I could not eat a bite of meat to save my life. I was so repulsed by it. So I had to quickly take that out of my diet again. Interesting. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. 
people are going to rush out and buy it now as like a diet pill. Oh, like this will kill my <laughs> hunger. I won't, I won't want to eat anything, but that's probably a bad idea. Yeah, I, that is not the message that I want yeah, to say. Yeah, just making sure, yeah, people don't take this that way. Not the takeaway. <laughs> people are always chasing supplements. And that's another thing where you can really save money on this diet. There's like, unless you're taking like something like colostrum or adding extra collagen or gelatin into your diet in some way, if you're like, if again, like if you're in the beginning phases of healing, or maybe magnesium is one supplement I could see that that people might want to take if they're having trouble sleeping and, and having muscle cramps and stuff. But other than that, you should not have to take a single supplement on this diet. Remember yeah. taking so much B12 um, prior to this diet for my hair and my, my nails and my skin. And I can't remember what else I was taking, but I just didn't feel good. So I don't know. I'm like, what's the point of taking them? And so many people take supplements and they don't feel good and they don't see an improvement mm -hmm. and they continue to take them. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and I think a lot of the supplements that people are taking, you know, it's to help them feel better or function better. But I think with this diet, it's not so much about necessarily like adding a bunch of stuff in. It's about avoiding the things that were maybe causing you to feel bad in the first place. And yeah, yeah I don't, not a band-aid solution on top yeah. of <laughs> and I haven't really heard of like nutritional deficiencies in people on carnivore diets. I mean, you commonly hear it about vegans, but I mean, I've been looking into this for a few months. I don't know about you guys. I haven't heard a lot of stories of people become becoming deficient on this. So it's not really complicated to get all your nutrition on this diet, I think. There was someone in the carnivore community a couple of years ago who apparently got scurvy. Really? <laughs> yeah. Huh, okay. but they were eating processed meat. Um, they were not eating nose to tail. They were eating like uh, cured meat, salami, you know, um, jerky, things like that. Um, not again, not nose to tail, not well-sourced meats, not good cuts. So it could have been, um, and who knows what state they were in when they started. Uh, that's the other thing you have to consider. Anyways, that was the one and only story I've ever heard. And that was two years ago. Yeah. I heard about that guy, Frank Tufano. I don't know if you've seen him on YouTube, but he like only ate steak for like three years in a row. And like, it was like the same cut of steak, I think every day. And he ended up, I don't know, with iron overload or something somehow. So, I mean, just don't do this diet like like foolishly like you know if it sounds peculiar and highly restricted like only eating the same cut of steak twice a day every day for three years that's like probably not a good way to go about it like you still want some nose to tail variety to some extent right yeah and if you have you know there's certain genetic um things that you want to consider like if you have the tendency to hold iron and not be able to flush iron properly like you know maybe you either will have to have phlebotomy or not do a full carnivore diet um so there are things to consider there um but that is truly those are rare cases yeah and i think if you just you know maybe every year or two go in for a physical get some routine blood work done just to make sure nothing's going wacky that's probably a reasonable thing to do if you're you know doing this to optimize your health moving forward yeah and i've had my blood work done i have my blood work done pretty much every three to five months um just for interest sake and i've never since this way of life i've never been deficient in anything everything yeah. has been optimal right across the boards what about you unlike, guys, Alicia? Meters of ten years of veganism. <laughs> What's that? Sorry. Unlike the blood work on my veganism. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, we've got. I've gotten my blood work done. Um, can't remember when. I think I messaged uh, Kate about it, or it was in the whole like meetup group. And um, 
Oh, I vaguely remember now. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. So I, I remember we were just doing like the standard blood tests and then we found I, out that there was like a whole different level of different things we should be testing out uh, while doing this diet. And then that's when we found actually Kate. Yeah. And we were like super like, like happy. We we're like, all right, great, great. We got someone who can like really guide us through. And then this whole uh, pandemic thing happened. So that kind of yeah. put a halt on everything. But I mean, I had to practically beg my family doctor for a blood test and I didn't even know what to they're weird about ask it. her for. Like I, I, I said, can I get my vitamin D levels checked out, my B12, my magnesium? I, I didn't really know, but I remember her reaction. Like I, I actually asked if I could see my cholesterol because I don't know what shows up on a standard blood test. And she was like, oh, you, you should be fine. But um, she doesn't know that I'm carnivore. I just feel really uncomfortable talking to her about yeah. it. But um, yeah, my blood test was, I didn't even know how to read it. So I look forward to this pandemic being over and uh, getting Kate to help oh, us out. Oh, guys, just email it over to me. You don't have to <laughs> so, um, you, you can tell us what exactly to, uh, to get our, tested for, right? Like the different and, markers. And, and yes, and you can still get blood work done right now. Life Labs is still open and running as long as you can get a requisition from your doctor. I know this is unrelated to the whole podcast thing. Yeah. For anyone who's watching right now, actually, don't feel like you can't do this right now. You can. Um, as long as you can get that requisition, you're just going in for an appointment versus a walk-in to, to Life Labs. And it's probably one of the safest places you can be right now. So, no. um, Even we're learning on this podcast. Yeah. I was learning. <laughs> I was going to ask Petra, is it a newer doctor? Because I also have, I started going to a new clinic with a newer doctor and he basically told me we don't just run tests to run tests anymore. Unless you have some sort of immediate concern, I'm not going to give you a requisition for any blood. I practically had to beg him like, please, I've, I need to like see how I'm I'm like, I feel great. I just want to have those numbers as a confirmation of it. So eventually he was like, okay, fine. But like, I'm not going to do this every year just so you know wow <laughs> like actually i wanted you to I do it every five that. months because yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. this is probably like a, a year or two now so now that i'm even more into it i'd be curious no it's not a new doctor it's, it's been my family doctor for a while now okay i mean it'd be yeah. interesting to look at the costs like people like us that are very like health conscious and want to make sure we prevent problems from happening yes there's a small cost associated with those blood tests every year or two that you're doing them but i'd imagine those costs are like minuscule compared to like an icu admission for like you know heart bypass or whatever right like yeah, right. they're you know, minuscule like, a vitamin d lab costs twenty dollars yeah and we we pay for that out of pocket anyway so yeah exactly yeah <laughs> sounds like i'll be making a trip down to the clinic yeah <laughs> <laughs> exactly there are some fantastic doctors out there though that will they will requisition this kind of optimal, um, the, the, the look, the lookout for optimal stuff. Like there are, I have plenty of clients that um, bring in blood work from previous doctors or previous clinicians and, and, um, and they were very willing to run it. So it's important. We don't just like paint this like broad stroke brush that, you know, all medical doctors are, are like not willing to support an optimal health journey. Um, you just have to find the right one. Yeah, my family doc, I mean, he may not read about all this stuff as much as me, but when he orders standard blood work for me, he's totally cool with me saying like, hey, can you check off these ones? Because this is important to what I'm doing to make sure like everything's good. And he's like, sure, no, no, no arguments. I think if you just explain to them why, they'll probably understand and, and do it. Yeah. And sometimes so, you have to pay out of pocket, but that's yeah. not a big deal. Yeah. 
okay, so I'll just tell my family doctor that I've only been eating meat for the last year, and <laughs> we'll see how that goes. <laughs> we teach her a couple of things, him or her. Yeah. All right, um, so to summarize all of that, we went on a major tangent. It is not expensive to eat on a carnivore diet. No. Um, all right, so question three. How do you know how much and how often to eat? So we kind of touched on this a lot in our personal sort of daily um, uh, summaries of what we eat. And so we can kind of unpack it a little bit, a little bit more sort of generalize it and, and flesh it out a little bit again, but I think we kind of have that in bag now. Yeah, we did do most of it, I think. Does anyone have anything to add to that one? Um, I was just going to say a pretty interesting story um, with me. What happened with me was that when I first started this diet, I didn't get my period for the first three months, and that kind of changed... Um, it forced me to change how much I was eating and how often and what I was eating. So I had a regular uh, menstrual cycle uh, prior to the diet and around month three of the diet, I'm like, okay, I still haven't gotten it. This is not okay. It's very important to me that I have my period. It's a, I think it's a pretty uh, big sign of where your health is at. So I messaged the women's carnivore group on Facebook and I got so many responses. I think it was like over a hundred responses and all various, super helpful though. But um, a common theme that I saw was to up my fat intake. So I did that. I actually also stopped intermittent fasting. I was doing like a eating after 12 and stopping before 8 p.m. kind of window. So I stopped doing that, started eating some breakfast, uh, started eating more too. So instead of having just a strip loin, I'd have a strip loin and some broth or a strip loin and some salmon. I kind of just started incorporating a little bit more food and more food and more fat. And what was super interesting was after like 11 or 12 days, I got my period, which was wow. fascinating. I'm like, oh my God, like they were right. So it was, I was so excited because I thought if I don't, get my period, I'm going to have to stop this diet or make some tweaks, but I just feel so good. Like mentally, physically, I felt amazing. So I was really happy that uh, I was able to kind of resolve that issue. And going back to the question, how do you know how much and how often to eat? It really depends on your goal with this diet or if you have any uh, pre-existing conditions or any um, health concerns that you're trying to resolve. With me, with that situation that happened, I had to tweak my diet a little bit and listen to my body. I had to tone down the fasting, but now we fast again. So you just have to really like listen to your body. And I would say only eat when you're hungry. Um, when you're really hungry. When you're really hungry, not bored. Um, not when you think you should be, cause oh, it's noon, it's meal time. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So it's so, it's such a, it's a hard question it's to answer because it's yeah. like intuitive eating. It's like, what does that even mean? I remember that we were told that like the first two weeks by uh, my sister and, and uh, Christina and Adam who introduced us to that. They're like, yeah, it's all about intuitive eating. I'm like, well, I'm hungry every day. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> all the time. All the time. I can eat at any given moment. So what does that mean? But I feel like after a while, when you really start to listen, I think that's the thing. You listen to yourself, right? Listen to the, what the, yeah. the, the, yeah. the cues that you get and how you feel and just make sure to separate the emotional 
because the emotion part can play a yeah. big part in your hunger. You could just be bored and you think you're hungry. Like a lot of times I had to ask myself, Daniel, are you really hungry yet? No, it's kind of like what Kate says, like you're ready to bite an arm off. I mean, yeah. at that point, you can't go wrong when you eat at, at that point. But before then, it's kind of like it's very easy to like misread or miscue yourself and thinking you're hungry when you're really not. Yeah, you essentially need to unlearn everything that you've been brought up with because to your point, I mean, it's not about eating when you think you should be eating or when you're feeling emotional. It's truly eating when you're hungry and you yes. need to eat, not because you feel like you want to or you should. Um, and that's something I think a lot of people maybe struggle with just because it's been such a big part of your life just to eat all the time you eat breakfast you eat lunch you eat dinner you eat snacks you eat dessert we're celebrating we eat we eat yeah. we eat we eat all the time and i think too coming off of um a more carb fueled diet where you know you have these continual spikes in your blood sugar and you go from you know super 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 full to like oh my god i need something immediately type thing um and just really learning what true hunger feels like is a little bit of a learning curve but once you get there then you'll be like ah yes intuitive eating i get it <laughs> yeah exactly exactly i think for a lot of our listeners they're going to be coming from the standard american diet so they're going to hear all this and be like oh yeah just listen to your body and you know do intuitive eating and you'll be fine they're gonna be like yeah like if i listened to my body i'd be 500 pounds because that's how i felt before right if i ate as much as i wanted or what i wanted i would be like a sumo wrestler basically but I don't, I, I want people to understand like you don't have to sweat it. Like once you start eating these foods and cutting out the old foods, it'll almost kind of like auto-regulate. Like before I used to use like Eric Helms's evidence-based nutrition period of like how to have diet success. So number one is like sustainability and adherence and then, you know, calorie control to make sure you're going in the right direction for your goals, macros, you know, micros, all that kind of stuff. But like this diet basically automatically has helped me like hit all those checkboxes. Like it's super easy to stick to. My hunger's under control. It's sustainable for me. Calories. I mean, I'm definitely in a deficit because I've gradually been losing weight, which I I want to do. Um, I'm definitely getting enough protein. Um, I'm getting enough fat. There's no such thing as an essential carbohydrate, so I'm not really worried about carbs. And then like the micros are all there. Like from what I'm learning, I mean, it's all there in this diet. So I think if people just you know start doing this, like it will kind of all fall into place automatically and your hunger will normalize. You'll eat at kind of normal times. You won't feel like eating five times or six times a day. Um, you'll finally feel in control and kind of at peace with food. Whereas before it was more like I was like dominated by food. Like my, I, my life felt controlled by food as opposed to me controlling yeah. what I'm eating and how much. It's more you live to eat instead of eating to live. I know when I was not fat fueled, um, my whole mindset was like, what am I going to eat next? What, when, what, you know, where am I going to get it? Like my mind was constantly on food because you would eat something. You're like, oh, a nice, uh, you know, healthy fruit smoothie. And 20 minutes later, you're hungry again. You're like, what the hell? This was supposed to be like super good for me. Like what's going on? And so it's just continually in my mind like what's going on with that it really took a lot, a lot of brain power to deal with all that so yeah. it's, it's quite liberating actually to not be so tied to food and when you're gonna get your next meal and I oftentimes yeah like we'll go all day and be like oh right food <laughs> like I should, I should maybe eat now I'm, I think I'm feeling hungry finally yeah, you, you touched on a good point. Like psychologically, it's very taxing. Like before, like, you know, you would, you know, diet, you feel good about yourself and then you'd have a slip up 
and you'd just be in the pits and then you'd binge and like you kind of like go through these like weird cycles where you have like a bad relationship with food like I've been through that too but with this even if you mess up a little bit it's like a little bit of a blip in in terms of how you feel but it's a lot more consistent and stable how you feel on this diet even just in terms of mental exertion and like your feelings about food and, and your body and you know how you're doing with the diet in the first place yeah. yeah, and I just think that it's important to quickly mention Pep to Petra's uh, story about losing your cycle. Um, you know, if you are a woman or you're breastfeeding or you're trying to conceive or you're even pregnant, um, there are some things, the extra things there that you do have to consider. So for sure, um, you know, that would be a place where you'd really need to make sure that your calories are adequate and that your fat intake is adequate. And, and, and for some people that might mean measuring or, or tracking for a little bit if you're not as familiar with sort of how to naturally kind of gauge those things by, by sight. Um, uh, yeah. And on the flip side of that, if you're someone who has been struggling with eating disorders, uh, specifically carb addiction or binge eating, then yeah, your, your cues are definitely going to be a bit jumbled. And so it might take a little bit extra work to kind of get you back into the right lane and, and, um, able to really tune into that messaging again. Yeah. And just about the weighing and tracking thing, I think it's important just to tell people to like, if you've never done that before, it's a really like educational exercise just to get a food scale. It's like $25 a Canadian tire, get my fitness palettes free and just track what you're eating right now, just for two or three weeks. And you'll learn so much about how much of what is in each food. It'll help you when you go out to eat and you can kind of like eyeball portions to get an idea of what you're eating. And that'll, those skills will like last a lifetime in terms of how they'll help you in the future. I yeah. And even if you're not measuring, even just doing a diet diary, writing, like just literally writing out what you're eating. Um, and then like at the end of the day, kind of reviewing um, what, you know, you'll know whether that's excessive or limited, or if it's maybe including a few things that you shouldn't have. I'm talking the whole journey, not just strict carnivore, but leading up to it, keto, whatever, whatever diet you're chasing. Um, it's just really good to sort of be in touch with the reality of, of what you're consuming. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize like liquid calories. I've had friends, they just cut, like I told them to tell me what do they eat for a week because they were struggling to lose weight. They were developing diabetes and there were so many liquid calories and I was just like, cut those out, you know, and you're going to lose weight like automatically. And he just lost like 50 pounds in three months just doing something simple like that, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Really, we've gotten we've gone through all of the questions that we were asked. I think that we've given more information than we probably even intended to. Um, but are there any closing comments or any missing links that anyone would like to add? No. All right. Well, good. I'm, I'm happy then to close the second episode of the Carnivore Roundtable. And like last time, we would love to hear from you. Um, leave us a review, a like, and send us your questions so that we can continue to give you as much information as possible. Uh, everyone have a really great sunny day. All right. See you guys. Bye.